Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Paris-based Australian author Caroline Brothers bears witness to the cost of human conflict. A former foreign correspondent, she has written War and Photography, A Cultural History, and two unsentimental and powerful novels which examine displacement. The Memory Stones, which begins with the Argentinian military coup of 1976 and tells the story of the disappeared, and Hinterland, which follows two asylum-seeking Afghan boys on a perilous journey across Europe. Brothers spoke with Dan Salmon. We hope you enjoy this session. Afternoon and welcome to this session, Memory Stones, Carolyn Brothers in conversation with Dan Salmon, which is me. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've been asked to reinforce today is that is a conversation between Carolyn and I, so we will leave room for questions at the end and we want to avoid questions during. So we'll let you guys know when you're allowed to ask questions. Uh, on admin stuff, if you want your phones on to social media, that's cool, but please have them on silent. Otherwise, it would be great to turn your phones off. Um, and finally, I'd like to thank uh, the generous support of Platinum patrons Josephine and Ross Green. Without them, Caroline would not be here with us. So thank you very much. Uh, as someone who whakapapas back to Tasmania, as does... Caroline, although she tells me she left when she was 18, 18. months old. Uh, I'm delighted to share a stage with her. Uh, she's a writer who, like many from Down Under, lives her life across hemispheres and time zones. She's worked as a journalist in the UK, Belgium, Mexico, Central America and France. There are other places that will come up in our conversation. Um, she has a PhD in history and her doctorate, which began as a book, which became a book, was on the Spanish Civil War and the development of modern war photography. Now as a novelist, I think, and I'm going to ask her questions around this, her fiction reflects the interests of a journalist historian who's worked in a global career, taking real-world events as starting points for poignant and thoughtful novels. Her first hinterland tells the story of two young Afghan refugees on an odyssey across Europe, and her second, which we're here to talk about today, The Memory Stones, is about the stolen children of the disappeared of Argentina. According to Caroline's online bio, The Memory Stones, and here's another list, was written in Argentina, Greece, Paris, and London, which I think is only slightly less impressive than the number of locations in the book itself. <laughs> so please join me in extending a warm welcome to Caroline Brothers. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to start actually by saying, and I have said this to you before, but I want to say this publicly, how much I enjoyed your novels. Um, they're thoughtful, human, compassionate tales in a time of increasing lack of compassion. Um, the other night, you said to me how surprised you were coming from journalism at how much readers connected to your characters. Mm. And so I wanted to kick off by saying, but isn't that just your job as a novelist? <laughs> I guess that's, that's true. You try to put a human face to the, the, the anonymity of news stories. And I think I've always been interested in what happens when the cameras move on and when the media moves away to the people that are left behind. You know? And it's the, the other side of the, the news cycle. And, um, and I think it's interesting when you work with real stories, 
it's important not to create these ciphers or to be seen as banging a drum and and um and and creating characters that are generic. So I wanted to each time try and create people that were believable and that um, had the, um, the I, they were kind of vehicles that I would pour the emotion that I encountered in these people or that I imagined. Because actually when you create characters, you sort of, it's like being an actor, I found. You have to kind of pour yourself into, into these people and imagine that you're them. It's, and I, I'm a lousy actor, so it's quite, quite surprising to me that it's possible to do it on the page. And um, so I think that's the thing, that I try to create people that are believable um, and that, and it surprises me that they take life for a reader, and that they sometimes readers have come back to me and said, "Oh, but you you did this to this person," and but they're only made up, you know. <laughs> but, but you know, they, there is that sense that they they take off, and that that it makes me feel very responsible, actually. That um, gosh, and readers have this kind of. A, a connection with the characters that you don't imagine when you're sitting in your little corner in your in your room banging it out on a computer. That and it's very gratifying, I think, to think that it's they've taken life and they've become real. You know, that's part of what you hope to communicate, I think, as a writer. So I don't know if that's an answer, a roundabout answer to your question, but yeah. No, I, th I, th I think it is. I, I was going to get up here and and quote Norman Mailer, who. I thought said uh, all the real truths are in fiction, everything else is just facts, but I couldn't find it on the internet, so it can't <laughs> be true. I did find, however, someone who we're probably warmer to, Doris Lessing, said there's no doubt fiction makes a better job of the truth. So I'm really interested mm. in your shift from someone who's had a really successful career pursuing truths mm. into fiction, and I wonder if like I've found making documentaries, sometimes the facts can't get you to the truths you're wanting to tell? I think it's... I've thought about this a bit, and I think what fiction... At a certain point, I had a bit of a reaction to fiction, saying, oh, it's all made up, and it's, it's not... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's... Um, there's a, there's a really great word for this, and I've just lost it. But it, it's um, it's a kind of artificial, and it's and it's made up, and it's you know. And then I started to, and then a writer called um, Michelle Roberts said to me, "But if you think like that, then you've dismissed the entire work of fiction." And it really made me go back and think, "What what is fiction?" And then it came to me that what we're doing in fiction is we're creating a different kind of truth, fictional truths. So through the lie, through the fabrication. We're trying to get at something more real, something more honest. And we know that it's a fabrication. We know these people don't really exist and that. But at the same time, because they don't exist, we can say things that perhaps you can't say in public. So it's a different kind of truth. And it, and it can tell you something more about human nature than perhaps than perhaps like the, the factual news. And I'm not, I don't want to go into denigrating facts, because I think they're more important now than ever before. But, but, um, but it's a different kind of truth that we're getting at in fiction. I think it can, it can give you an emotional honesty and a, and a psychological honesty that perhaps is glossed over in other fields. So, and fiction is, because these books, um, could, I don't know if I'm anticipating your question, but these books could have been written almost as non-fiction books, both of them, and I had to make a choice, and I thought, 
if I write these as fiction, they'll reach more people. Because I want these, they both felt like important stories for me to tell. And I just thought, if I can write these as fiction, people who are not experts, who might not even encounter these stories, will will be able to approach them and go into them in a way that they, there won't be the barriers. So you don't have to be an expert in Latin America to, to read the memory stones because the story leads you through, and it leads you through following the tale of these individuals that are grappling with something much larger than themselves, just as we would grapple with it. So it gives you a truth about how we as humans face things, I think. I think that's what I'm getting at. I don't know if that explains it well, but... <laughs> no, 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 I think it does. And, and there are great examples of non-fiction that mm. find the perfect character to tell the perfect story, but more often than not in practice to tell, say, your, your first novel of two Afghan boys walking across mm. Europe, mm. you'd have to tell that story through multiple characters that you went out and found. And so there's a way of, of connecting us to these true stories that happen with fiction. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about both these stories is that in some ways, the people in them are victims. Like these two kids, okay, Hinterland is about two Afghan boys that walk to Europe, basically. It's an extraordinary story that I discovered as a journalist and found there were real children doing this before anyone knew about child migrants and anyone saw them as any individual case that was separate from the bigger migration story. And um, I don't know, I think um, I wanted to, when you're creating characters that have had something major happen to them, there's two things that work with that. Because they're children, because they're minors, I felt that I wanted to protect them. And I have this kind of emotional relationship to these kids that I didn't want bad things to happen to them. And somebody said to me, who read early bits of an early draft, she said, you're protecting them. You've got to let bad things happen to your characters. You've got to put them under pressure, maximum pressure. I thought, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, you know. And then, and then I, she said, just write a couple of sections, just write it. And you don't have to keep them, just write it. And I wrote, and then I realized that you, for the reader to identify or to, yeah, probably to identify or empathize with it, you need to put them through tough things. And then that's when character comes out. What do they do? And that's what we, we follow with them. With the memory stones, I had also a, f a family that, in a sense, is a victim of a horrific uh, expression of state terrorism. And um, of course, they are victims, and you, the temptation is to make them good. And I think there's a problem with writing good characters because you tend to sort of rub over the, um, or, or eliminate the, the rough edges, and you, and I thought, no, these, to make them real, they have to have rough edges, they have to have failings and flaws, and not always be likable, and, you know, and so, and, and to do things wrong, you know, and, um, but at the same time, I felt there had to be something essential, something I don't know if I'm going on to another question you might want to ask, but, but, um, but in the case of one of my main characters in The Memory Stones, Osvaldo, um, he was constant. And as a story, that was the most important quality in this man, no matter all the other things that were going wrong with, him, with what he did. But he was constant. So 
you have to find the thread, I think, but allow your characters to breathe, to make mistakes, do things wrong, do things that you don't really want them to do. As an author, you're trying to keep them. I want them to be nice people, you know, and you have to let them be, let them be real. I, I, that is something I want to talk about later, but um, I'd like to step back and, and, and talk about the memory stones because, boy, do you put your characters under pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and it brings together those three hats of novelist, historian, and journalist. Yeah. Um, I think quite beautifully. So there's a there's a reading I think we should oh, okay. kick off with, um, which is about the grandmothers. Um, this is a section, um, page 73. Um, where in 1977 in Argentina. The character Yolanda has been looking for her missing daughter, who's one of many Argentinians to have recently disappeared. And for those of you who might be looking for more historical background to this, we'll talk about this after. But if we could okay. start with the section. Uh, this is a, a beautiful section from the novel. OK. It takes place in November 1977. From a distance, they look like doves in their white headscarves. Every Thursday, they have started turning up there, circling the square opposite the Casa Rosada, because as long as martial law is in force, it is forbidden to assemble and stand. In their sandals, in their sturdy shoes and compression stockings, they walk in silence, holding their big photographs. And those who don't have photographs hold up hand-drawn signs instead. Where is my daughter, the placards say. Where is my son? This is the end of the road. This is where the mothers come when there are no more avenues to try. A hundred pigeons take flight. They billow over the monument like a mainsail, then circle it before vanishing into the sky. Should she join these women? Yolanda asks herself. Would it do any good? She wonders what Osvaldo would think, what sharp-tongued Julieta would say. Though she'd had misgivings when her eldest daughter told her they were moving to Miami, again and again she gives silent thanks that Julieta and her husband are half a continent away. Julieta had wanted to come home as soon as she'd heard about her sister, but Yolanda would not countenance it. She couldn't bear the strain of it. A second daughter unsafe. She thinks about Graciela, her precious second-born, who she loves as much but differently from her first. More like her father than Julieta ever was, Graciela will now have been a mother for the best part of a year, experiencing these transformative months of her life with no one from her family by her side. That is what Yolanda tells herself, what she needs, what she has to believe. In the depths of her heart, she knows there are other alternatives, but none that do not end in a chasm of pain. Yolanda scans the faces in the square, there are mothers, housewives, and grandmothers, ordinary women and professional women, mothers of teenagers and mothers of retirement age. Demure in their white headscarves, they could be the junta's ideal of womanhood if it weren't for their lack of passivity. Yolanda knows, because she shares their fury, that they will march till their children are returned. Rain begins to fall, fine as a summer mist. The women walk in silence, forming a circle around the pyramid in the square. Surely it is safe, Yolanda thinks, watching them pace like schoolgirls in their knee-length skirts and sensible buttoned-up coats. 
Surely there'd be an outcry, she tells herself from her vantage point in the portico of the cathedral. Surely it would be a step too far if they started arresting mothers before the Casa Rosada. Yolanda was in her early 20s and not yet married, but clearly she remembers it, the last time Evita addressed the crowd from the balcony overlooking the square. Is that right? Thank you. <laughs> Now tell us, tell us about the doves. I mean, that seems to me a pivotal scene in the book. So perhaps you could the tell doves. us who they are and what's happening here. The headscarves, yeah. yeah. They're, well, these are women that whose... It's, there's so much to explain about this very dark time in Argentine history, but there were a great many ordinary people who worked as who were students, who worked as psychologists, who were lawyers, who were unionists, who taught literacy in the slums, you know, organizers and people with social conscience that were seen as leftists. And the, the definition of leftist and guerrilla and all this started to expand. It's like terrorism, you know, it just starts to become this all-encompassing thing. And, um, sorry, these, um, and so these, these women had, and people were snatched off the street overnight. The, the word in Spanish is chupada, sucked up. They were sucked, no one knew where they were because there was no police record, and no um, explanation. The people who took them were, wore no uniforms, had no identification. They came in unmarked, usually green Ford Falcons with no number plates, and they vanished. And these women would, these are the mothers, and they would go looking for their children. They'd be, and fathers also, but, this group of women um, had tried everything, gone to every potential institution that could possibly help, and the doors were slammed in their face time after time because these, there was no record, and so the state had no obligation to say where they were and pretended that they weren't there and would say things to them like, oh, they might be on holiday, or, oh, um, you know, you must keep better eye on your children. What are they? If they've disappeared, they must be up to something. You know, there was, and this sort of very demeaning. And, and the 70s, I think, were quite a horribly sexist time. And I think they were just put down, put down, put down. And um, and in desperation, a group of them got together. There were 12 initially, and they went to the Plaza de Mayo, which is the square in front of the Casa, Casa Rosada, is the pink house, which is the equivalent of the White House. It's like the seat of government in Buenos Aires. And they would go there demanding an interview with Videla, the dictator, of course, which, of course, they would never get. And because it was a military dictatorship, they were not allowed to stand and gather. They had, so the police said, move on, move on. And so they started to walk in a circle, in pairs, because you couldn't assemble. So they walked around. And they, this was a Thursday afternoon. And they put white headscarves, which were actually originally babies' nappies, you know, but it was just a white headscarf that they could identify each other. And as time went on, they embroidered names on it. And they, they took... They're very interesting, actually, because they took the symbols of traditional womanhood, traditional motherhood, which, in fact, the junta was, val was validating. You know, women, it was Kinderküche Kirche, as the Germans would have said, you know, children, uh, there was children in the kitchen and the church. That was what women's domain should be. And so there they were, these demure women with headscarves on, um, going, and, and I think it was very complicated for the regime initially to do anything about it because you couldn't attack 
initially you couldn't attack them. And they went to the square demanding this meeting with Videla, which they never got, and they just kept walking and walking. And every Thursday they came, and then different things started happening. They were attacked by police. They came down with police horses um, to run them down. There's photographs of the, the square in floods, you know, and because of heavy rain, and they'd be there with water up to their ankles, still walking. I mean, and they became... It's very difficult to express, to overstate the bravery of these women because people were being pulled off the street all the time, you know, from weddings, from football games. They were just being... To, to, to strike fear into the population. And these women, simple women often, without any political experience, took it upon themselves to be visible and to go to this square and to, to show that they weren't going to just go away. And that's what they, you know, and then and that the other very interesting thing about that is they became the only voice of opposition to the regime in Argentina, and people started gravitating towards them, putting little tip-offs in their handbags. So they were seen, and they would tell them they'd seen something. Also, they got nasty things, hatred, a bit like Twitter today. <laughs> you know, the dark stuff would come out as well, but. but but they, um, but they would get these, and, and they would they would get tip-offs about what had happened. And sometimes they were rubbish, and sometimes they were useful. So it was a very, um, very and it was all new. And they were learning, they were learning how to mobilize and and how to organize women who'd never done it before. And they weren't just housewives. They were some were um, professional women. Some were, there was one who's still alive, amazing woman who was an obstetrician. They had all sorts of backgrounds. And they came together in this sort of very courageous way to, to demonstrate their, their opposition to a very murderous regime. And there's another chapter about this, because they were, um, they were disappeared themselves. There was a very sinister attack on them um, not that long after they were formed. And, and 12 women were disappeared themselves, including two French nuns who were close to them, and, um, and three of the founders of the Plaza, women of the Plaza de Mayo. And um, their bodies were later found, having been dropped out of aeroplanes. They were found in unmarked graves, identified by DNA, and not all of them have been found. But you know, so they they were they're, um, they were up against the most most frightening, most brutal, most violent regime, and they did it. You know, and they're still they're still going, and they're still marching to this day. So it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> So, so I can see why for you as an historian mm. or reporter this might have appealed. Did you find the story through? How did you find the story? How did I begin as... Yeah. I'd heard of the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo. And the other thing we've all heard of is the Falklands War, which was, believe it or not, Maggie Thatcher went in there and put an end to that regime, which was probably not her intention. But, but I didn't know much about... And, um, one day in France, I was where I was working. Um, I opened a newspaper, and there was an article about a man called Juan Hellman, who is an Argentine poet, very, very eminent. He'd won the Cervantes Prize, and you know. But I didn't know his poetry, and I didn't know that much about him. But the story was, this man, Argentine man, it caught my eye because he's living in Mexico, and I'd just been living in Mexico. He'd been searching for his missing granddaughter for 23 years. And his son and daughter-in-law had been, were like, these mothers were amongst the disappeared. But he'd found out that his daughter-in-law was pregnant. And so there had been a grandchild born. And so he decided 
to try and find this child, except that you can't just decide to go and find it. it just, it's very, very complicated where you even begin to look. But, but he'd spent 23 years and he'd found her in Uruguay, in a completely different country. And um, they'd recently been reunited and were getting to know each other. He wouldn't tell me anything about her or even her name. But um, because I went and interviewed him. So I read this article and I just thought, I, I was going to Mexico, I've got to see if I can speak with him to do an article. So I went and he very graciously accepted to meet me. And I got to Mexico City and it turned out that his apartment building was back to back with the building I'd been living in like a couple of years beforehand. So it was this sort of sense of parallel lives of, and which is a big theme in the book because these, these families looking for members of their family, they're living in the same city, but they're just probably passing each other. I mean, it drives you mad. You could be passing them in the bus or the metro or something and not know that they were there. And so that became a theme. But his, so his story was, a, and we spent like three hours in his studio talking, and it was just, it was very um, sobering. I think I had a bit of a cry halfway through, and he said, why are you crying? He said, this isn't, a story. This isn't a sad story. This is a story with a happy ending because he'd found the, the grandchild. But of course, he hadn't found the daughter-in-law, and he had actually found the son in a barrel of cement that had been buried in a reburied in an unmarked grave, and then and then re-identified. And he was able to have a burial, a ceremony, and a burial for his son, which is more than most of the families of the disappear ever get. So. But so his story was very inspirational, and I tried to write an article, and I realized this is immense, and I can't write this story in an article. It was so there was so much to say and so much to explain that um, that I had to just I put it aside. I wrote another book. I kind of had a couple of goes at it, and I thought I'm not ready. I don't. It's not working. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And then um, and then later on, I had some time, a sabbatical, and I just thought. This is the time. I'm going to go to Argentina. I'm going to spend a month or two there. I'm going to do as much research. I'm going to speak to the mothers and the grandmothers and these children. If I could meet his grandchild, fantastic. But there were others by that time. And the stories were starting to bubble up. And I thought there was, I could do research and I could bring a whole new dimension, a new generation being affected by this history that we all thought was over in 1983. You know, that it begun in 76, finished in 83, and that we feel like its history is over and behind us. And yet, here it was bubbling up again in the lives of a completely new generation who had no idea, who, many had no idea what had gone on, and, and who believed that it didn't affect them. And boom, these kids are finding out, actually, you were stolen from a disappeared person. You've been brought up by another family altogether. You are not who you think you are. And that's like... Absolutely devastating. So I was fascinated by that whole thing about identity and you know the lies of families and the quest, the quest story of the families in searching. So. And there've been a, a number of them come to light. Yeah, yeah. There's the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo because you had the mothers forming, and then about six months later the grandmothers formed, and the grandmothers were people who had not just missing children but missing grandchildren. So they had a double hit of it. And they've been searching for 40 years, and they've found 122 children, and they think that there's another 400 out there who have no idea that they're not growing up in the right families. 
I skipped a bit in the sense that when these women were, when these people were taken prisoner, put in these clandestine detention centres, no one knew where they were. They were essentially dead to the world. Families are trying to put out habeas corpus writs, and um, the lawyers were disappearing. You know, so terrible, terrible. Um, you know, this, these stories were starting to. Well, the grandmothers were out there searching, searching, and then finally, with some successes and many disappointments, they found these 122. Missing kids, incredible, isn't it? It is. And and when you were out meeting people and interviewing them, were you at that stage writing a novel, or were you still researching a story that? Yeah, no, I was. I decided to write a novel, and it's a bit odd when you go, oh, "I'm a novelist. I'm writing a novel." And you think, "Oh, they're going to take me seriously. They're going to want want to talk to me." It was a bit odd. I wasn't used to that. I'd been usually. I go as a journalist, and people know what that is, and they accept. They know there's going to be a product at the end of it. With the, but I did. I was certain that I was going to write it. I talked to my editor, and I bombarded her with this mayhem of ideas, and she said, "Sounds good." <laughs> so, so off I set, <laughs> and um, and I knew that I would write a novel. I didn't know what I needed, and I didn't have the structure yet. But I did know that I needed to speak with the mothers and the daughters, and I had some incredible strokes of luck. Um, going to, I knew no one in Argentina, so I put a little message out on the dreaded Facebook, and two people came back, or several people came back, and one said, oh, you've got to meet my good friend. Um, so I met his good friend, who's a publisher there, who was great mates with a radio producer, who knows everybody, and had written a book of interviews with the children of Argentina as soon as the democracy was restored. And so he knew everyone, and then he put me in touch with people, and that, that just really helped, having someone to break the ice a little bit. So, cause as a, and the other thing about Argentina is that they all work with mobile phones. And it drives me mad because they all have 12 mobile phones because they all get one plan here and one plan there. So their mobile phone numbers keep changing. And they don't answer their emails. It's mobile phones. And I was, my Spanish is good, but not my Argentine Spanish, which is, you know, and I felt inhibited because it's so hard to explain what I had to ask. And so it was, but I was going as a novelist I knew that I, I wanted to get a sense of place and places, and I wanted to to go where I imagined. I knew enough of the structure of the real stories to um, to know, like for example, there's some detention centres that I wanted to visit. Gosh, there was a big trial for the, the they dis, they were able to prove that the theft of children by the dictatorship um, at the in those years is a systematic plan, and the trials were going on. And I didn't know that I would be able to attend a trial. And I would just happen, to, and they said, oh, yes, this day and tomorrow and a few days later, they're, they're having the hearings. So I could just go to the, the trial. And there was Videla sitting in the dock with, with Maniaco, who was an obstetrician, and another general, Bignone, and these wizened old men who'd done so much evil. You know, it's so strange to see them. They just look so ordinary, you know, and, and unrepentant. You know, Videla's defense was those women who were pregnant were using their pregnancies as human shields. You know, it's just offensive, offensive stuff. Unre unrepentant to the end. But, and he died a year later, so in jail. But at least there's a sense of justice, a certain extent of justice for um, the families that have seen terrible loss. Um, so I wanted to get an atmosphere um, and go to places. I went. I caught the boat across to Uruguay and back because um, I wanted to see what the Rio de la Plata was, um, and I wanted to go to Tigre, which I, was a very lush kind of. 
I was stayed, in fact, Airbnb. I stayed in an Airbnb place because I had a fabulous apartment and it fell through. I got to the airport, it fell through when I was just before I was going through, um, through immigration. She, oh, sorry, I've broken my foot, you can't stay. It's like, so um, what am I going to do? So I booked into a hotel and then went on Airbnb and found this wonderful, wonderful lady who's mad about tango and lives right in the right area of Argentina and had a few friends that could put me in touch with and was just interesting. And so you have luck when you do these things. And um, I got the metros and the buses and I went to the parks and, and then I, I've got to get out of, Argent out of Buenos Aires. Also, it's a bit oppressive, this story. It's a bit spooky and dark, you know. So I went down to Patagonia for a little while. Um, and then, you know, I'm going on big tangents way off your questions. I'm really sorry. But <laughs> well, all, but all these, all these places find their way into the novel. Yeah. That's, so there's this. But you don't know when you're writing the novel what you need. And so you follow your interests and you go, and then, oh, I can use this. And, I can, and when I went across to Uruguay, someone said, oh, this is where the, all the Argentines come for their, like, their little romantic weekends. Because um, like in England, people go to Brighton. You know, it's just down that they have their little affairs and stuff. And then in Argentina, they go to um, uh, just, um, just across the across the river. So I went to this, um, what's it called? I could go to say Santiago de Compostela. It's um, Montevideo, not, not, not Montevideo, a little a Colonia del Sacramento they go to. And it's really pretty, you know. And so I went there and there's the cannons and there's the Portuguese buildings and the Spanish buildings and the little wisteria and the, you know. So I was just wandering around there being a tourist. And then later on I thought, I'm going to take my characters there, you know. And so you do things without really realizing, but then everything becomes useful, I think. But you just have to allow the, the atmospheres to, to permeate you. And going out to Patagonia was, you know, I'll just tell one little side story, but I got, I got down to Patagonia and I wanted to see the Cave of the Hands. I just had this image of hands, because this ancient, ancient artwork like we have in Australia, but this is a little bit more recent than that. But this cave with just hands of all different colours on the rock in the middle of this kind of steppe, you know, tundra. And, um, and I got there, it was the very end of the season, and it was getting really cold. I didn't have enough proper gear with me, but I found a guide, and um, he agreed to take me there. And so we're driving along these roads, and armadillos are running around, and you know, it was very, you know, very exotic for me. And we get to this, um, we, 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 on the way, he starts to tell me that he himself was from Buenos Aires, and that in 1976, they came for him. And he ran to the roof of his building, and then he ran. There were um, he ran. A, he escaped by running across the rooftops of the houses, and then down another. And then he ran. He said all the way to La Plata, which is another town, probably about 40 k's away. All through the night, he just ran, ran, ran. And then he knew someone there. He got on a some transport bus, I think, and ended up went as far as he could down to Patagonia. And he still lives down in Patagonia. And you know, you just realize people's lives. Are all it's not talked about, but it's all there. All, you know, everyone is affected, and that when you talk to them, they, a lot of people saw nothing. You know, didn't know what's. And I think that's a that's another subject we can talk about. But the way mm. people react to terror is they put the blinkers on and they they just try not to see too much because it's dangerous. And then they they think they haven't seen things, but really they have. But anyway, be vigilant, people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought up that scene because those of us who are lucky enough to have read the novel will recognise a cold scene yeah. in that yeah. cave yeah. Uh, through the character Anna. And, and one yeah. thing that has occurred to me listening to you talk 
uh, through the research process is, mm -hmm. is to ask whether any of the characters in the book were based on people you've met. Real people. Yeah, Oswaldo and the man you met in Mexico yeah. or, or yourself yeah. and Anna. Yeah, um, no. Um, Oswaldo, the trouble with having done my interview with Juan Helman, the poet in Argentina, uh, in Mexico, was that um, his story was so powerful that I kept getting pulled into his story. I thought, I've got to not write his story. I've got, I'm doing fiction, you know, and I, don't, I can't take his story. I have to do something different. So... But I kept, and I decided to take a, a man as this, as the main character in this because um, this, it's a very feminized story. In this, the mothers and the grandmothers of the Pazmo, it's a very, it's very well known and very, it's been told multiple times. So I, I'll take a male view of this, but it, of course it's not purely male. But um, and I had to try and not make him too much modeled on one Helen. But um, I think a lot of his. I didn't know him. I, I did an interview with him for three hours, but so I didn't really know him. But I think a lot of what I felt about him infuses the character of Oswaldo. And um, Juan Helman did have a second marriage, and his um, but so but and he did live in exile in these different countries in Europe, not the same ones that my character goes to. But um, I made my character into a doctor, not a not a poet, um, and I gave him other children, and I put him through other countries, gave him another profession, and gave him other weaknesses and other characteristics. But there is one character, she's a minor character in the book. She's a survivor of one of these horrendous, horrendous, horrific detention centers, um, an ex-prisoner who remembers things. And this is the key in Argentina. There's one or two people who got out, who escaped, and they remembered things. And they made it their business to remember names when they were inside. And this one, I remember when I went to visit ESMA, which is a military, naval academy, um, it, which has become like a symbol of it. There were 360 detention centers, and they're all in the middle of suburbs and old police stations. You think, how could this happen? You know? And this one's in the middle of Argentina, oh, middle of Buenos Aires. And um, uh, what was I going to say about ESMA? Um, Real person. Oh, yes, that's right. I went on this little tour there. And there was various people came, a few Japanese tourists and I don't know, people from all over. And this Argentine, two Argentine women were there. And I remember this very small woman with a purple scarf and very, very edgy. And um, she'd been a prisoner herself, not in Esma, but in another prison called El Devoto. And she'd been a prisoner. And if you were a prisoner, it was horrific but your name was registered somewhere, whereas the disappeared weren't registered anywhere, and so it was very easy to dispose of them. It's much harder to get rid of someone who's a prisoner where there's a, actually a name on a register. So she was, in inverted commas, lucky. But all the terrible things, the torture, the rapes, all this had happened to her. And she'd come to... I imagine she'd come with... It must have taken quite a lot of courage to come to this place. To, I don't know what had brought her to it. But um, I remember her being very cold, and she had very cold, hard eyes, and she was suspicious of me, a great deal of suspicion. You can't, you couldn't criticize the government on any level, because if you weren't with them, you were against them, and it was, and you sensed how precious it was that they had a government that supported their, their the human rights of these types of people. And um, she became the model a little bit for Inez Cavillo, who's a woman who is an escapee, who remembers and um, who has seen things. And I just thought, how interesting. I thought, if you were a prisoner, 
you know, you'd be full of the joy of life because you've got out of this stuff. And then I realized they are so marked, they're so scarred, and that she's probably feeling her way back to being normal. And I've since met a few others in Paris. There's a, a group of Argentine exiles still living there and who are trying to keep the memory alive, and they have various events, and sometimes ex-prisoners come. And, um, and they're, they're, they're oddly broken people somehow. It's sort of not necessarily easy to be with them. And I thought, jeepers, that's such damage. Well, I had to um, go away and rethink not only a question, but my take on the book after you said to me the other night Oswaldo was one of the main characters. Mm. Um, and it, and it, where I'd initially made this sort of gender connection and him mm. being helpless and hopeless, it got me thinking about heroism because in books like this we look for a hero mm. and someone to you know shine the light of great humanity on this great tragedy but but there aren't heroes but there are survivors and I wonder if yeah. if one of the things you're saying in this book is that to survive is heroic to survive yeah. without becoming them yes it's, yeah I think it is I think um, I think that's quite an astute sort of way of looking at it. I think I w perhaps I'm a bit uncomfortable with the idea of heroes or people that are larger than life because these are just ordinary people going, th you know, trying to bring up a family. Going, I mean, they're a middle-class family, but that was just... I wanted to just show that it could happen to anybody, really. There were working-class families who were horribly affected by this as well. But um, anyway, there's various reasons for that. But... Um, and it was just ordinary, I, mean, I think I'm quite interested in this ordinary everyday survival or ordinary everyday heroism in the sense like these two boys in Hinterland as well. I didn't want to make it a thriller and make them heroes of an adventure I, because it felt perhaps somewhat dishonest to the reality because this is a banal thing. It's happening every single day in, you know, refugee kids are wandering Europe. It's just, it's just there, you know, and I didn't want to sensationalize it. And it, with the memory stones, I think, um, yeah, it was, perhaps there are no heroes, you know. The, the, he, but he stepped up and he did what he needed to do. And he, it, there was a kind of heroism in the sense of um, that uh, he succeeded and he handled it correctly. When the time came, he handled things correctly because there are people who... They're in the stories of the grandmothers. They're trying to. F they're so so desperate to find their their missing ones that um, you know th when they find them, they kind of throw themselves at uh, at the person, for, and the the child is just freaked out and panicked because they've been brought up with a whole other ideology and a whole other life, and they can't cope with the shock of it. And there's so there's a certain heroism perhaps in. Well, yes, I don't know if heroism's the right word, but it's, uh, 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 there's something to be admired, I think, in his sensitivity about how to approach this very, very, very sensitive situation. Um, heroes, heroes. And, and there is a tendency to heroize the mothers of, and the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and yet they are fallible and they, are, they have made mistakes and all that. So I think I just feel a little bit uncomfortable with the... I, I think it's... I worry that I, as a writer, am seen as flipping over into something more ideological then, and I'm writing a political book, and like all the good guys are heroes and all the bad guys are villains. You know, I, I felt that that would be too schematic, and so I had to have a little bit of ambiguity on all sides. 
We, another thing we talked about was was the fact that fascism doesn't die mm. at the end of World War Two, and mm. when we look at global events mm. and we're desperate for the whoever's going to lead us out of the mess of whichever of the many countries that are in messes at the moment <laughs> around the world. And and we get really pissed off with people when they don't and we blame them. Mm. And so we set up these heroes and then they fail. And and you know, I wonder if there's a lesson in there that we actually just need the grandmothers to find each other mm. to lead us to something that, that's built on on love rather than greed yeah. or I mean, I think that the grandmothers, if there's any her heroes, I suppose they're the closest you get to heroes in, or heroines in, in this story. But um, I just was a little bit wary of going, going too far in that. Well, um, yeah, that's right. I think the idea of, like, we're in, a, we're in an era now where fascism is very attractive. Like, extremist politics are very, very attractive at the moment. There's a lot of frustration in the world, and people are reaching for further, they're reaching far left and far right, but there's a great rise of the far right at the moment. And I wanted this book in some ways to be a reminder, because we think of fascism, we got rid of that at the end of World War II, you know, the Allies won and that the Nazis were defeated and so it's all over. And in fact, no, it can rear itself anywhere. It reared itself very in a very ugly form in Argentina, but it's not only in Argentina. I mean, it can happen you know, traces of it are happening in France and in, and in Britain. You know, it's, it's not a dead force by any stretch of the imagination. So this is a book that in some ways is a, is a bit of a warning. And you know, there's been a lot of talk at this conference about speaking truth to power. And I'm just wondering whether actually we need to speak truth to each other, you know, because power is letting us down, <laughs> you know. They're not reacting, you know. And I think we need to be aware Mm. and tell each other what what can happen and just we need to tell each other speak power to each speak truth to each other about power maybe i'm i'm aware we're heading marching through this quite quickly oh. uh, and there are a couple of quick questions i wanted to get to before we throw to mm. uh questions from the audience and and we were hoping for another reading but one thing i did want to ask you about is this is a very beautiful looking book mm. and it is a beautiful book but it's also there are some very ugly, very violent sections mm. in this book. Mm. How, uh, you know, there's material there for many of these books of, of the violent events that happened in Argentina, but what did you have an inner sensor or an inner, uh, uh, some rules around writing the violent scenes in this book? Oh. I didn't want to overwhelm the reader with horror. And I realize, I think that book readers are a little more sensitive to horror than cinema goers. Like, people go to the cinema for horror. And when you write dark things in books, people freak out, you know. They, um, so, and I was very conscious that um, it's, this book is a celebration of life in a lot of ways, you know. And that it was very important for me to, to, to balance the darkness with with the celebration of beauty and the celebration of, because that's what these people, well, they want to just lead normal lives. You know, they want their families back. They want just, there's a point where Osvaldo says he just wants to walk down the street and buy the bread on the way home and talk to his daughters, you know. Very ordinary things. The, the violence, um, I was not sure how to write it. And I realized when it came to it, I did it almost in a trance. And it's not very long. There's like one 
There's one section, probably two sections, but um, so it's not like the book is dominated by it, but it's under, it's sort of a bit underlying, and I think that's how it was for people then. They they knew that some stuff, they got glimpses of things, but mainly life is as we lead it. And um, there was this one one section where I felt it needed to be there because the book needed to be underpinned by the reality, so it had to be in there in some form, and I couldn't. I found that I just couldn't write it. So I wrote, I wrote it almost like a poem. Like I just sort of, this, it had to have a different form and it was out of, out of time almost, out of context. So I wrote this almost like a poetic thing, a couple of pages and as a little capsule of its own that, um, because perhaps it was almost too frightening for me to go there, you know, and then there's a couple, there's another point where someone recounts and tells a story, but we're we're receiving that with the help of our with, of the lead pro protagonist Osvaldo, so we're feeling it through him. So we're not alone with the horror of it. Um, so I don't think it's something that people need to be too frightened of. That the no, no, I, I, I was going to <laughs> say it's not gratuitous, so don't let <laughs> it put you off reading of it, the book. But, yeah. but it has to be there, so we know what we're talking about. That's the, the violence yeah. of that truth of that regime. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, now I wonder whether, before we go, whether you'd rather go straight to questions or do another little reading. Oh, what do people want? Do they have questions? If not, I can read. Reading? I'm reading, hearing reading. reading. Okay. Reading. So, <laughs> so as, as a little um, lead into this, uh, one of the things that these characters find is the people you turn to when you're in trouble aren't there to help them, the structures, uh, the, the police, and in this case, the churches. So this scene is about mm. a character, Oswaldo, who is looking for the missing granddaughter, going to the, the Vatican. Vatican. So I'll let you take it away. Okay. Um, uh, let me just see. The, just to let you know, his wife is Yolanda, I think we mentioned. Osvaldo's wife is called Yolanda. And um, he has been living in Paris, and he's done a favour for someone called Carla. And in return, she realises in her family she has someone who's connected to a, a bishop at the, um, uh, in the Catholic Church who is connected to the Vatican. So she set up this meeting for him. Um, and he shares an apartment in Paris with two other Argentine exiles, so they get a mention as well, just so you know if these names come up. Okay, so but he's just arrived in the Vatican and he's gone through various courtyards and staircases and he's, he's met, he's in the room with the bishop. Before me, the bishop, dressed in a long black cassock and a purple sash, stands with his face to the window. When he turns, I see he's quite a bit older than I am, a clean-shaven man with cropped white hair that clings to his head like lichen. His hands, thick-fingered, are broad as a farmer's. I wonder how he manages the small black buttons that cascade from his larynx to his shoes. He grips my hand in his peasant's paw and greets me with warmth in his eyes. Osvaldo Ferrero, he says. Eminence, I say, and instinctively bow my head. I sense the generosity in him, despite the austerity implied in the jet-black sweep of his robes. We make small talk about my trip from Paris, about the brisk spring weather in Rome. He asks where I am from in Argentina, and in his rumbling voice informs me that he spent many years there as a missionary and feels a great affection for my land. 
Will you walk with me, he says after a moment. It's more of a command than a question, but he says it gently. It's understood I'm to follow his lead. We descend another flight of stairs and emerge inside a courtyard with a fountain. He takes a diagonal path towards it, and I accompany him to a low stone bench among rose bushes that have been mercilessly pruned. My mind has been on a roller coaster for days now, dreaming about Graciela's homecoming, wondering what the bishop might say. Yolanda, who's been through countless versions of this meeting back in Argentina, cautioned me repeatedly against hope. For them, this is just another appointment, she'd insisted, even as I made her promise to ring me immediately after my return. If he's seeing you at all, he's only doing it as a courtesy to Carla's friend. Still, now that I'm in Italy, inside the Vatican, inside this courtyard, I can't help thinking, could they have made me travel so far in vain? I sit beside him in the lemony sunshine and wait for him to speak. The fountain textures the quiet with its pattering. The water arches back on itself, forming a shape like a glass hibiscus as it falls. He must know something, I think to myself. My heart is thudding. There must be something he has managed to find out. From somewhere inside his cassock, he produces a pair of mittens the size of bed socks and wriggles his great paws inside. Circulation, he says, almost in apology. At my age, one tends to feel the cold. I nod. The air is clear as crystal. Far above us, with its angel's eye view of life on Earth, an aeroplane traverses the sky. I have been informed of your situation, of your great suffering, the bishop begins, and suddenly every fiber in my body is alert. I know you are in need of information about your daughter. Unfortunately, the circumstances in Argentina are very complicated. I'm afraid we've not been able to ascertain very much. My heart falls so heavily it must be audible. He is preparing me for the disappointment Yolanda intuited even before I caught the train. He knows nothing. He has found out nothing. He has nothing after all to share. I breathe in and breathe in again, trying to steady my mind, but my thoughts are already racing backwards, back towards Roma Termini, back up the spine of Italy, back across the south of France and north to the station in Paris. Already I'm back in our pokey apartment where Carla and Arturo will have finished lunch and will be laying out their books to start their afternoon's work. I will thank the bishop for his trouble. I will take my leave. Politely, I will walk away. This is what I can tell you, he continues. There was a child that lived. I freeze. The planet halts its slow rotation. A child that lived? This is what I am able to tell you. A child? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? He looks at me with eyes that return only the reflection of my own. This is all I have learned. It is all I have been told. Had it been possible to find out more, I would have informed you of any further facts. My mind is spinning. Though he is speaking carefully, I cannot absorb his words. A child that lived? Does that mean the child is living still? I understand your anguish, Senor Ferrero. Your eminence, I implore you. The child's mother, my daughter, Graciela. Preserve this, I say to myself. Hold tight this, tender, this slender thread. Senor Ferrero, I am sorry. This is all the information I have for you. I hope it brings you some peace. I'm desperate now. He will walk back to his office. The double doors will close, and it will be as if this dialogue never took place. Could you go back to them? This is my one last chance, and I'm pleading. I beg of you, Monsignore, would you ask them again? 
He has a line of communication. He has only to keep it open to find out more. But he is standing, and he's waiting for me to stand. When I do, he places his hand upon my forearm and stills me with the anchor of its weight. Your family is in my prayers, he says. There is empathy in his eyes. I do not underestimate your pain. He will not do it, or cannot. I watch his figure recede across the courtyard, slender in his long black robe with its shock of purple, a good man who perhaps discovered long ago that goodness, too, has its limits. Nevertheless, he has tried, and he has managed to prise open a door, yet it isn't enough. How could it be? Peace, he must have known I'd find scarce solace in his words. I'm furious with him and grateful to him and shaken by the violence of what I feel. Graciela, I want to shout her name from the bell towers, from the obelisk and the great dome of St. Peter's, from the cupolas and the bridges and the ruined monuments of a city unashamed of its scars. I look up in search of the horizon, but it is obscured by the high stone walls. Beyond the fountain, beyond the courtyard, beyond the parapets and defences, swallows swoop in vertiginous orbits, painting a Sistine Chapel in the sky. The bishop leaves me a few moments of solitude before sending the priest back down. We walk in silence, our footsteps echoing through the endless passageways, the hem of his cassock darting again at his heels. And as we walk, the words of the bishop return to me like a flame in the depths of the labyrinth. There was a child that lived. <laughs> I'd just like to finish by saying that, you know, I think this is, this is a beautifully crafted book that goes well beyond the skills you'd have developed over years as an historian and a journalist. And I want to thank you very much well, thank for you. sharing with us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.